Okay, um, how many of you know what a dramaturge is? See up here? The dramaturge. We actually have a dramaturge that's supposed to come this morning, but I don't see him yet. Are you here? Here he is. He just walked in. The okay. His mother um, requests that the recording be remembered. <laughs> <laughs> okay, I want you right here. And uh, let me just explain what a dramaturge is. A dramaturge is the guy that explains what the drama, what the play is all about. He explains to the, the, the players, here's how you play your part. Here's why we're going to use period dress. Or no, we're going to you know, move uh, Romeo and Juliet to the west side of uh, you know, New York City and, and do uh, the west side story. You know, so the dramaturge is going to explain. So the dramaturge Daniel, Daniel the dramaturge, we'll call him that. Uh, Daniel the dramaturge is going to tell you about the script. Do I have uh, props? Do you? <laughs> well, I'm glad I brought some supplemental. Yeah, yeah, no, I didn't bring any props. That's the dramaturgist job. I see. All right. Well, uh, today, as the dramaturge, it is my humble duty to introduce you to what it is that we will be dramaing today. I know some of you are uh, no drama people. It's not that kind of drama, don't worry. We're here today to talk about different kinds of books. There are supposed to be a lot of different examples in the script. I brought one. This is a book that is full of literary devices, and it's a very wise book. It has a lot of information in it. This is a book that I go to to learn how to win arguments, whether I'm right or wrong. That's the purpose of this book. It's not the purpose of this book. It's to make you better at using your language. But that's what this book is for. Now, you might misappropriate it to get better at sophistry, but when it comes to this book, the purpose of it is entirely different than any other book. Something like this, you know, you can kind of take some liberties with it. It's not that big a deal. The genre is not that important. It's just a book with someone's opinions on some stuff about talking good. This book is entirely different from any other kind of book. It's not something that you can take the same wheelhouse that you apply to anything else and get into it. It's not like a book of information. It's not something to help you know things, primarily. It's not something to help you feel good about yourself, primarily. It's not a self-help book. It's not an advice book. It's not any of these things. What it actually is, is a completely unique kind of book. The only true historical drama. That's not the only true history books. There's some history books that talk about what happened and report it accurately. But those aren't dramas. Dramas are something that a dramaturge might introduce. There's a point to a drama. There's something that only the Bible is able to merge between a drama and history in that it both is scripted, in that it has a purpose, it has an author, it has a meaning, but it's also what actually happened in history. And the important part of that is that it is a story. It has all the elements of a story. It has a beginning. There's characters, there's primary movers, there's a rising action. 
there's crises, there's resolution, there's disaster, there's hope, and there's a rising action towards this climax that the entire historical drama has been building to, even though it's what actually happened in actual places, in actual time, with actual people. And that's what's remarkable about it. Well, <laughs> obviously, what's really remarkable about it is who's the only person who could author such a thing like that? Who's the only author who could write a true historical drama? That's what's actually <laughs> the most fascinating about it. And the point of this book exists as well. We just talked about what it is. This is a historical drama. Well, what else is it? When we're talking here, the purpose of what Gary's going to be speaking to us today is what we use this for. I use this book for improving my language skills, but what should Christians use this book for? Why was it given to us? Why was it so important that God has preserved this script, this collection of dozens of authors over almost a thousand years, like hundreds of years, why did God deem it so important that this get to us today? Well, we're going to look at today what the four purposes of Scripture are for the believer, for those who know it is a true history and not some different genre. It's not a fairy tale. It's not make-believe. It's not any of these other things. We know that already. So how are we supposed to use it? Why did God give it to us? Well, in part of what it is, we talk about the fact that it's an inscription. This is God's inscription into the physical world that carries the record that he wanted it to carry. This isn't just what happened to survive from some wise rabbis or particularly vociferous rabbis. This isn't what happened to be preserved from the ravages of time. This isn't a collection that some guys at a council drew up because they wanted to control people. This is what God wanted to write. And he wrote it, his inscription, through the description of what happened. So he inscribes the words that people spoke, the true things that were said, his voice breathed out in scripture. Now, just because someone says something in the Bible, that doesn't mean God said it. It's not a good thing. If you've ever been made fun of for using discretion as the greater part of value in the wrong context, you'll understand how that works. Knowing who's speaking is important, but all scripture is God-breathed. He wanted it all to be in there, and it's all accurate. It's inscribed with the words that were spoken. It describes accurately the events that took place and the people that were there and the times that it took place. And in fact, secular sources again and again, if you want to set someone on the right road to believing the Bible, get a bee in their bonnet to disprove it. You'll find all kinds of stuff if you go out searching to make God a liar. But also, and now we're kind of moving into the, okay, we understand that, what then? Well, the third scription is a prescription. So this is uh, what God wants you to understand in his script. 
you'll notice that a lot of these keep coming back to script. It's prescriptive, it's descriptive, it's inscribed. Well, the reason these are all scriptive stuff is, again, going back to the importance of words, script itself. It means to write. comes from Latin verbs and nouns are complicated in other languages sometimes, but the point being that all of these things have to do with authorial intent. This is what the author wanted. And what the author wants for us is not to be necessarily or primarily anything, but directed to understand his truth and directed to the source of that truth. That's why he wrote it. And most importantly for the action portion of it, it's conscription. That's a bit of a weird word to have with the other scripts because we know that word is meaning to be forced into military service. And in a way, we kind of are forced into the service. <laughs> Which one of us here thinks we're strong enough to deny God's love? So in a way, yes, but it's not the kind of conscription where Putin comes around and says, my war is going poorly, so you must aid me. Instead, it's a great opportunity to sign with the rest of the church to join actively the war that you've been a part of since you were born. And to do that, this book is what guides us in what our roles are. There's a verse that talks about everyone knowing where to stand when the trumpet is sounded. We're supposed to know our roles. God didn't leave us this so we can wander around going, oh, that's too complicated for me, or I don't understand that. And some things are complicated and difficult to understand. Again, this is not a book about understanding. If you're going to the Bible and coming away saying, well, I didn't really understand what I mean, well, the purpose then, ask God. The whole point of this is to bring you to God. And that is what we're going to be talking about today, specifically those four things that this book is uniquely an accurate recording of what was said, an accurate description of who said it, when they said it, where they said it. It is prescriptive. It's God's guide map. It's his, in fact, script that he has written for how we are to live our lives as people who believe his truth and understand his love. And it's conscription. It's called for us to sign together to this great endeavor that we call denying ourselves, taking up our cross, and following him. Great. Thank you very much. That's a, that's a good overview, okay? It's an, an inscription, it's a description, it's a prescription telling you what to know and what to do, and it's a, it draws you in. And so uh, we have such a different view of, of, of the Bible. So many people use it in different ways that I just want to run this by you. When we say the Bible is not primarily a book of virtues, we don't mean that it doesn't direct us to virtues, but that's not what it's primarily for. Okay, So it's not denying there are no things that will direct us in virtue. When we say it's not primarily a book of religious experience, we don't mean we don't experience things from that, but that's not its point. You see that? When we say that it is not primarily a therapeutic manual to make you feel better about yourself, that's the whole thing today with identity politics, making people feel good about themselves and recognizing the person's chosen identity. You know, it can change day by day. 
It's not that. It's not a source for motivational stories. You know, you can buy books at the Christian bookstore about motivating you to feel better, to do better. Well, there's some of that there, but that's really not what it is. It's not primarily for devotional purposes. Now, that may strike you a little strange. Say, wait a minute, I thought we're supposed to be devotional. Yes, that's there, but that's not primarily for personal inspiration. It's not an encyclopedia of propositional statements to be structured into a systematic theology. Though that's there, that's not primarily what it's for. It's not simply a story, you know, that people, you invite somebody in to enjoy. Here's the point that I want you to see, and I know we're saying this over and over, and we're doing that because I know how well, you know, we miss it, you know, the first time. So I'm thinking maybe six or seven times, a third of you will actually get it, okay? Uh, I'm a slow learner. Most of us are. Here it is. It is the canonical record. Okay, this is the record. Canon means the, the final rule or final authority of the great redemptive drama that God is staging in the world to bring glory to himself by blessing his world. That's what this is all about. This is going to show how God is going to bring blessing. And so it records the drama in such a way that those who read it are actually drawn into it. One of my favorite illustrations of this, if you ever see the cover of the Chronicles of Narnia, The Voyage of the Dawn Treader, any of you read, read The Voyage of the Dawn Treader? It begins with a picture on the wall of this Narnian ship, and Eustace, who is the prig, that's the, the British term, he's the kind of guy nobody wants to be around, he eventually turns into a dragon, but that's another part of the story, but he's making fun of the Pevins and children talking about Narnia because it's all a make-believe thing, and they're looking at this, this picture of this Narnian ship, and the next thing you know, they start to feel the sea breeze. Then they start to get wet. And the next thing, they fall into the sea, into that picture. And I think that's exactly what the Word of God does with so many people. Somebody picks it up and they read it, and the next thing you know, you know, they have been drawn in to this great work that God is doing, and we're no longer an outsider, we are now an insider. Does that make sense to you? You get it? Finally, the Bible becomes our script for continuing the drama as we wait for the restoration and the renewal of the word. Uh, the world. Okay, so the, the Bible is that. It's important to get that and to understand that. Now, if we have the Bible, how do we properly interpret the Bible? Again, we take a whole, you know, 12 sessions going through it, and we won't answer it, but I've tried to reduce this down so it makes some sense. The Bible is a complete and a complex divine speech act. We call it a communicative act. It's not simple. There's a lot of different parts to it, and we need to appreciate that. And, and it's more than just revelation of God showing us something, revealing something new. There are promises, and there are demands, and there's information that it's given, and there is so much more. You know, and so if we're going to appreciate it for what it is, we need to know something about that if we're going to interpret it. 
Now we say that the Bible, Scripture, I'm going to be using Scripture, Bible, Canon interchangeably. Okay? So I'm not meaning something different, I'm just different ways of expressing it. Scripture is a word act revelation. Now what does that mean? It means that it does things in this world. God is doing something. And I want you to see these two things. Number one, God acts. We talked about this before. The flood. You know, the, the exodus. The resurrection of Jesus Christ. Many of these things are actually recorded in secular history. You can read them in the history books. They don't explain what it means, but God acts. And so our conviction is things aren't just happening, but back to the Yahweh uh, sign over there, he's directing all of these things. God's doing things, but God's also talking. Our God is a speaking God. And so the Bible explains what God means by these things happening. What happened and what does it mean and where are we going? And so if we're going to follow the script, you understand? It means we need to know something about how to, uh, uh, to read it, to understand it. So not only is God acting, and not only is God speaking, but he's doing that progressively. Uh, there was a, a guy in uh, Chattanooga when I was pastoring, uh, lived right next to us, probably the meanest neighbor we've ever had. Uh, he had a stroke, nearly died, and in the midst of that, God saved him. Uh, every time I opened my garage door after that, Norm would come in, and uh, he'd want to talk to me. And, uh, and, and I had a great time with Norm. He grew so much. And about a year ago, he finally had the last brain bleed and died, and thankfully, he is with the Lord. I'm convinced of that. But his question was, why does God make this so complicated? You know, why doesn't at the beginning, why doesn't he just save us and take us straight to heaven and get rid of all the stuff that we have to deal with? The pain. You know, I can identify with that recently. The people. You know, look around. There's some people here that bless you, but there's some people here, if you could, you know, uh, you, you'd send them to someplace else where somebody else could be blessed by them, right? Okay? The fact is, we go through all of this stuff. Why doesn't God just make it simple? Why did Victor Hugo take pages and pages and pages, or Solzhenitsyn, or, you know, uh, Tolstoy, or, you know, all of these Russian and other, why do they take so much time? Because they want to develop the character and plot so it becomes meaningful. So God is going to do this, and he's going to do it progressively, okay? And, and so it's redemptive. What do we mean by redemptive? What does that mean? Yeah, he's buying us back out of slavery. So this is a book about being liberated. You know, it, it's the, uh, 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 remember uh, uh, Lincoln's proclamation? What was it called? The Emancipation Proclamation. That's what this is. But not from, you know, uh, 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 the situation that he faced, that Lincoln faced, but it's our own sinfulness. So it's redemptive. It's historical. What do we mean by that? History. I'm sorry? It's history. It's history. It's actually happening. You know, if you read the Chronicles of Zarnia, 
If you read uh, Harry Potter, you know, if you read uh, The Lord of the Rings, you can't go to those places. They don't exist. That history doesn't mesh with ours. Not true of the Bible. The Bible's history meshes with world history, and it moves along. It's historical. That's not true of most every other religion. It's these maxims and these sayings, but the Christian faith is based on history, but then here's the big word, it's eschatological. What's that mean? It's going somewhere. There's a beginning, there's a middle, and there's the end. The beginning is God created. The middle is Jesus Christ rose from the dead and ascended into heaven. The end is he's coming back and there's going to be a big party. Okay, There's going to be a great celebration. There's going to be a new heaven and a new earth. So when we read the Bible, we have to read it as redemptive. We have to read it as historical. You know, we need to interpret it as being eschatological. Uh, I put up here a picture of progressive covenantalism. That's a way of recognizing those steps. We're going to come back to that in a minute. Uh, there are three horizons. When you're interpreting Scripture, if you come to a passage of Scripture... When I was a little boy, I remember my mom uh, uh, giving me, teaching me this in a way that I won't forget. She said, I'm going to quote the Bible to you. I want you to do exactly what the Bible said. Said, Judas went and hanged himself. Go thou and do likewise. Whatsoever thou doest, do quickly. <laughs> you say, now wait a minute. Is that what God wants me to do? You can pull things together and you can make them say whatever you want to say. Okay, And so it becomes important that we know the horizon, and there are always three of those in biblical interpretation. The first is the textual horizon. What is the text? So Judas went and hanged himself is not in the same context of go thou and do likewise. There are two different contexts. We need to know that. And you want to be careful about reading books with people that will connect things together that makes it sound sensible. Go back to the Bible. Look at the context. What's there in that context? Then there's the epical horizon. Is this Old Testament or New Testament? Uh, I remember a guy saying one time, God wants you to obey every command in Scripture. So go sacrifice your firstborn son. That's what he said to Abraham, right? Are we supposed to do that? No, it's the wrong, it wasn't directed to us that way. And so when it comes to you know, observing the feast days, are we supposed to observe Passover and all the rest of those? No, we're in a new covenant era. We need to know where we fit in this. And it's easy to take passages and pull something from here. In fact, the great witch trials in Salem, all of these women were killed. You know why they did that? Because they went back to some Old Testament passages that say, don't suffer a witch to live. And they pulled those out of there, and they put them in a different context, and lots of people died. Lots of families were hurt because of a misuse of a text of Scripture. So we need to be sure, where does this fit in the storyline? And the third thing is the canonical horizon. How does this fit in the Bible? You need to get the whole thing. 
not just a little part of it here and there. You need the whole thing and to see how this fits in. Does that make sense to you? You know, it's not a simple way. It's not a simple thing of just going to a verse and pulling it out. You know, the thing you close your eyes and point, oh, this is God's word for me today. That's not how we want to do that. That's Sesame Street. Uh, <laughs> that's what? That's Sesame Street. Yeah, that's Sesame. Though actually, Augustine did that, and he came to the verse that transformed his life. But that's another story. We'll have to come back to that later. Okay, I want to talk to you about typology. This, this demands hours of discussion, but I try to, to bring it down into a simple way. Typology is, uh, I've, I've taken some text of scripture where that word typos, the Greek word that we get typology from, is actually used. Romans 5.14, a pattern, a type of the one to come. In that great section where he talks, Paul talks about sin. 1 Corinthians 10 uh, uh, verses 6 and 11, these were examples for us. They were types for us. 1 Peter 3.21, water symbolizes, it's a type of baptism. Uh, you'll have some interesting discussions with certain groups of people over that verse. Right, John? Uh, uh, Hebrews 8.5, the pattern that was shown you on the mountain. Uh, in Hebrews 9.24, a copy of the true one. You know, there's a tabernacle in heaven, and there was one they built on earth, and the one on earth is a copy of the true one. So typology is not just something that we introduce to Scripture. It's actually there. It's actually part of it. So let me try to explain a little bit what it is. It's the principal form of the New Testament's interpretation of the Old Testament. Best example that I know to give, you remember in, Matt, in uh, Luke 24 when the disciples are going along the road to Emmaus and Jesus has been resurrected, now is walking along with them, but they don't recognize him. And you remember he said, what are you guys talking about? And they turn to him and say, you must be the only guy in the whole area that doesn't know what happened. Well, what happened about this Jesus of Nazareth? We thought that he was going to be the one, and they killed him, and now the women are saying he's raised, and it's, a, it's just a big mess. So what does he do? He goes into the room. They serve the bread. They recognize him. What does he do? He goes back to the Old Testament scripture and opens them up to show how it's all about him. The Sabbath is about him. Man wasn't made for the Sabbath. Sabbath was made for man. He is Lord of the Sabbath. Okay, if you take the temple, he is the temple. Destroy this temple, you know, and in three days I'm going to raise it up. The Passover, the Passover lamb. You see the connections? They are there throughout Scripture. It can be in any one of a number of ways. And there is a historical correspondence. It links the old and the new. So if we take Sabbath, we have Sabbath, God rested the seventh day, and then in uh, uh, the time of the Exodus, the Sabbath is then appointed for Israel to keep. And then later, Joshua takes them into the promised land. You go to Hebrews 3 and 4. That became a Sabbath. And then David says, but there remains yet a rest for the people of God. And then Hebrews says, well, that's talking about the rest that we have. Stop trying to do all you're trying to do and rest in the Sabbath. And that's pointing forward to the ultimate Sabbath rest in the new heaven and new earth. 
So when you see the word Sabbath, it's not just one particular point of time, but it runs throughout Scripture. Do you see that? There is a link. There's a correspondence between the two. It's textually warranted. It's embedded. It's not creative. I didn't make that up about the Sabbath. It's actually God put it in the Scripture. You know how it is when sometimes you go to a movie, especially a whodunit movie, and right at the beginning there'll be two scenes that don't make a lot of sense. Two people meet, they give somebody a package, you go through the whole thing, and it comes to the end, and you say, oh, that's where, that's who, that's when. That was intentionally put there as a clue. And so when you go to the Bible and it says the seed of the woman is going to crush the head of the serpent, you say, what? What's that all about? We would never have gotten that if that's all we had. But that's simply a hint. Because who's the dragon? You know, Revelation tells us. You know, who is the Messiah who's going to crush his head? It's a whole picture. It's giving us a hint that's going to open up. So typology is this that's going to open up, and God put it there. He intended that to be a clue that he's going to later fill in. And so through the Bible, there will be what we call intertextual development. It's going to escalate. The Sabbath, or the feast days, or the Passover lamb, those things continue to grow. And where do they all find their focus? In you? No. Find their focus in Jesus Christ. That's what this is all about. God is developing a stage and directing a drama that's going to put his son right in the middle of this. You know, so however you read the Bible, if Jesus is in the center of it, you're misreading it. You know, that's what Jesus said. He opened the scripture, and then he disappeared. And you remember, then a little bit later, he comes back again and does the same thing. And he opens up the scripture, and it shows how they pointed to him. And what we mean is God intended it that way. It's not something creative that I came up with. It is prophetic, and it's predictive. God's telling you what he's going to do. And it's grounded in providence. Over there, Yahweh, the director, you know, he's directing this thing. All of these things are working out a way that's ultimately going to bring glory to Christ. So, typology, as a New Testament interpretive or hermeneutical endeavor is the study of Old Testament salvation and the historical realities and types. It's looking at those things and seeing, how do they point forward to Christ? You know, how, how does the Day of Atonement, remember that was uh, Yom Kippur, you know, is the big feast day even today for the Jews. What was contained in that? What was it pointing toward? Well, it's pointing toward the death of Jesus Christ. Hebrews said the blood of bulls and goats, all they can do is purify the outside, but the blood of Jesus Christ offered once for all. You see how that opens up and begins to explain it, the, the realities, the types. It can be a person, it can be a place, it can be an event that God specifically designed to correspond to something that's going to grow and ultimately find its fulfillment in Jesus Christ. Now, I, I almost feel embarrassed 
that we're quickly rushing through typology because this takes months, you know, of these lessons to really make the point. But I'm hoping that it will at least get your attention enough that you can say, wow, I need to be able, when I read the Old Testament, I need to look for how is this pointing forward to Christ? You know, where's Christ in the Sabbath? Where's Christ in the feast day? Where's Christ in the temple? Where's Christ in the priesthood? You remember Aaron and the robes and everything that he had? All of those are pointing forward to Jesus Christ. He's the great high priest. David the king. Well, he's the little king. Jesus is the big king. He's the, the final king that's going to sit on the throne. So I, I can't tell you if you, you know, if you'll commit to read through the scripture over and over, you know, uh, Tim and I have been talking about it, you're going to be amazed at the things that are going to come out, that you're going to see that God wants you to know and he wants you to enjoy. And, and we're going to say it's not allegory. It's not this means that. It's different than that. It's like the acorn that grows into the oak tree. There is a genuine connection there. And it's rooted in textual and historical realities. Uh, it, it, it's not just made up. It's not the creative work of some interpretive genius. So you have these recurrent patterns. I'm going to go through this just very quickly. You have relationships that are not arbitrary, but they actually have been ordained by God to point forward to Jesus Christ. I'm going to skip through these last couple because uh, we won't have time to get to the next one. But let me pause for just a second here. I know that's a, you know, kind of a, uh, a fire hose approach you know, to giving you a drink of this. Concerns or questions? Does that make sense to you? Are there things that, that you want to ask about there? Uh, here's your chance to uh, take all the time you want. I've got 30 seconds. Uh, <laughs> now, what, what, what questions do you have with that? Is that making sense? I tell people when I, you know, when I was a pastor and I would preach, I'd say to people, now, let me give you one hint. If you'll shake your head every once in a while, I'll preach shorter. Because I'll get the idea that you're actually getting this, and I don't have to go over it again, you know. So uh, I, I, I want to make sure you get it. Okay, yes? Uh, can you give an example of maybe a common um, mistake of embedding something in the Old Testament and, like, that's common today that we might not be aware of? Sure. You know, Sure. Yeah. For instance, uh, one of the—I uh, even forget the guy's name. He was on radio broadcast a long time, a Christian radio broadcaster. He took Jesus in the boat with the disciples, you know, and uh, you know the boat stood for the church, and you know G Peter walking on water meant this, and Jesus meant this, and and that's all contrived. That's not what that's about, you know. And so we can't take every person or event or situation and make it into something that it's not. That's why it's important that it's embedded in the text. You know, that Jesus makes the connection. It wasn't just somebody that said these things were pointing to Jesus. Jesus said those are the things that are pointing forward to me. You know, and so when the apostles use that, we're given help to know that we're not making this up. You know, so it's important to see it actually in the text of Scripture, you know, that that's what God intended. Good question. Any other questions there? Yes? 
is there a specific error that's common in the American church that comes from not properly uh, parsing that? Yes, yes. And, and in fact, um, it, 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 hold that for just a second, and let me go to this because that's going to open that up a bit. Uh, and, and, and understanding our relationship with God is covenantal. Okay, next week we'll talk about the difference between a contract and a covenant. Okay, I'm going to pick on John here. Okay, uh, John has made an agreement to buy my car. He's going to pay me $712 a month for the next four years. Okay, he's promised his wife that he's going to be faithful to her until the day he dies. And so next week he misses my car payment and he cheats on his wife. Now, which of those would you rather address first? <laughs> you better talk to me first. I'm just going to charge a little extra money. How do you think his life would look like after that? Would we just send cards and say it was good knowing you? Now, do you, you understand the difference between a contract? John and I had a contract. We contracted for business purposes. This wasn't a contract for business purposes. Mm. This was a covenant, mm. a covenant that he made. And to violate that covenant is far worse than breaking a rule. That's why when, next week when we look at Adam's and Eve's sin, it wasn't they just broke a rule. What did they do? You know? They were guilty of adultery spiritually. They moved away from the God who loved them and gave them everything to this charlatan, this pimp, I call Satan a pimp, who came in and destroyed everything but according to God's purpose. Well, but that, that comes next week. But, but with covenant, what I want you to see, the Bible, covenant is central to the Scripture. Everything about it is, is, uh, uh, is, is directed by a proper understanding of the covenant. Now, our, uh, we actually need another hour this morning, but I'm, I'm at my time limit, so I'm going to have to scrunch this together. I'm going to come back to the question that Daniel raised. There are essentially three different ways to read the Bible. Dispensationalism, covenant theology, and New Covenant or Progressive Covenantalism. We'll talk about this a little bit next time. But each one of those will, uh, uh, dispensationalism, is going to focus only on the land covenant. So the land that was promised to Israel has to be given to them exactly that way. And it's a misunderstanding of the typology of that. Covenant theology makes the same error in terms of the seed promise, that God's going to give them a seed. And so their view is that, you know, it's, it's uh, God, uh, Abraham, and his seed. You know, and so I don't have time to, to uh, open that up further, but, but misunderstanding the nature of typology hurts both of those, and it undercuts what they say. So, uh, uh, it becomes important, though, that we understand this. God's relationship to us is not uh, happenstance. You know, the Greek and the Roman pantheons, 
you're always afraid of what's going to happen. If you're going to take a, you know, a, a void someplace, you offered to one of the gods hoping that they wouldn't you know, send a wave that would take you under. Because you're never sure what they were going to do. That's not true of God. God doesn't have a relationship that we don't know what's going to happen. He sets it out clearly in covenantal relationship. Here are the parameters. Here are the things that I'm expecting you to do. You do this, I'm going to bless you. You know, you don't do this, I'm going to discipline you. And we have the entire Old Testament to give us a wonderful picture of that. We do not, as generally in, 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 in the Baptist world, we recognize covenants, but we tend to not emphasize those. It's just kind of there, and you're going to see when we look at this next time, I want to bring them, give them the, the, the position of importance that the Scripture actually does. And so we are in a covenant relationship with God. And is that, what is the covenant? Well, it's the new covenant. You know, we, every time we observe the Lord's table, we say this is the blood of the new covenant. You know, this is the bread that was broken. And so the reality is everybody on the face of this earth is in a covenant relationship to God. You realize that? There's no one that's independent of God. The only question is, is that covenant relation one that they recognize his authority and they submit to it? Or are they in rebellion against it and fighting against it? But you can't get outside of that. You can't get outside of the realm of God's sovereignty. This is God's world. You know, he made you, and he made everybody else. And guess what? You know, on that great last day, you're going to show up. You know, you're going to decide, you know, I don't think I'm going to show up to the great white throne judgment. I'm going to cancel that appointment. Not going to be able to do that. So, understanding that our God is a sovereign God that's entered into a relationship covenantally, just as we talk about John. That's not just so that, you know, his dishes will be washed, his clothes will be clean. It's a relationship, it's a life that they share together. That's what this is all about. God establishes a covenant so he can bring us into a relationship so we can know him and enjoy him and whatever we have now is just a snack. You know, it's just an appetizer. It's not the real deal. You say, well, I have the Spirit of God. Not the whole deal. You know, there's more coming. You say, well, I have my sins forgiven. Yes, but there's more coming. You know, you say, well, you know, God's given me a healthy body. It's not going to be healthy forever, but there's something better that's coming. You see, we, we have to recognize where God is taking us in all of this and God's purpose in all of this in, in doing this whole drama of redemption is to showcase Jesus Christ. Because the reality is, what everyone wants even if they don't understand that, is to know and be loved and love back Jesus Christ. That's what it's all about. And the scripture is given to us to help direct us in how to maintain that relationship, you know, and how to move toward the ultimate end of that. 
And I have to say this, and then I got to be quiet. You can't do it alone. It takes all of us together to be able to do this. And the day will come that I will be frustrated and upset with God, and that's when I need Mike to come along, put his arm around me, and encourage me. Because the next week, Mike will be ready to slit his throat, and I'll come by and encourage him. And we do that with one We need one another. We need to get past this idea of just knowing each other's names. Now, I bet if I ask uh, each of you to stand up and point to ten people and name them, there would be some embarrassment. We don't even know each other's name, let alone know their heart. And God is not in the business of just teaching us to know each other's name. He wants us to know our heart. He wants us to share that heart. He wants us to have his heart to share with other people. And I promise, last thing I'm going to say, uh, Philippians 1, where Paul said, I'd rather depart and go to heaven. That'd be the best. As I've gone through some of these surgeries and stuff, I'm thinking he's got that right. You know, uh, beam me up, Scotty. You know, let's, let's go. But he says, it's more needful for you that I remain. Convinced of this, I know that I will continue with all of you for your progress and joy in faith. So that through my being with you, your joy in Jesus Christ will increase. Now friends, listen. That's the joy that we have fellowship with God. And that fellowship and communion, we can pour out. We become a channel and we share that with the other people that are around us. Now, friends, that's what this is all about. It's about a community that God brings together under a covenantal structure so that we know how to walk with God. And we know that whatever we enjoy now, it's going to get better. You know, it's going to be more than we can even begin to describe. Well, with that, let's pray together. Father, we pray today that you will take uh, these uh, things we've talked about today and, Lord, would you bind them in our heart uh, to move us in the direction of, of seeking to know you, to love you, to enjoy you, and then to overflow in blessing others with the joy that you've poured in our heart. Father, I pray that you will protect us from uh, the worldviews that are all around us that distort those things and make us seek the wrong things or entice us to seek those wrong things. Lord, I pray that you'll open our heart to a fresh appreciation and experience of the truth and the joy and the fellowship we have in Jesus Christ. For in his name we pray. Amen. Okay, see you next week. Lord willing.